So how do you know? How do you know when you've got the right medical team in place? Our next guest, Dr. Randon Welton, talks about the alliance between the seekers and the givers, that connection that determines the results in recovery. It's a two-way street, and there has to be respect in both directions, a commitment and a willingness and a wanting to be healers and to be healed. That's up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. From the birthplace of modern recovery, Akron, Ohio, welcome to Rock and Recovery. Recovery Talks, the podcast, dedicated to sharing stories and amplifying the voices of those on the front lines in the recovery movement. Our commitment to you to always deliver straight up sober talk with the sincere promise of a safe, stigma, and judgment free zone. Recovery Talks right now. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lee Shannon, and my guest today is Randon Welton. I'm going to call you Randy, if that's okay. That's, that, that is fine. Awesome. Wow. Let me start on the credentials of, of Dr. Randon Welton. Um, Randon Welton joins Neomed as the Margaret Clark Morgan Endowed Chair of Psychiatry following a national search. No pressure there, right? I'll bet you. <laughs> Dr. Randon will be responsible for providing administrative leadership and developing a shared departmental vision for the Department of Psychiatry. This includes collaboration with the university and colleges, strategic plans, and addressing student mental health. Bravo on that. He will oversee three centers of excellence and will work with departmental faculty to enhance the research portfolio. So Dr. Welton most recently served as residency program director at Wright State University, Boonshaft School of Medicine. He spent over 20 years in psychiatry resident and medical student education, which includes roles as residency outpatient supervisor at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center and deputy residency education director at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. I love San Antonio. What a great city, right? Amazing. It is a fantastic place to be. Dr. Welton served also as a member of the United States Air Force Service for 24 years. Congratulations and thank you for your service. During this service, he held the position of psychiatry consultant to the Air Force Surgeon General. Wow. And was selected for the Department of Defense, Department of Veteran Affairs Works Groups to create clinical practice guidelines for post-traumatic stress disorder and bipolar disorder. Wow. Dr. Welton earned his medical degree from the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland, and completed his psychiatry residency at Wright State University School of Medicine. Welcome to Recovery Talks, the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. This is a, a great opportunity for me. I just want to say to all our listeners that uh, Dr. Welton is not in recovery. This is a pivot for us. Usually we talk to people that are have a uh, gone through that process, but I, I will tell you that I'm, I can't be more pleased to bring your perspective to our listeners because we met through our mutual friend, Dr. Amy Lee, and she's a member of the Rockin' Recovery Advisory Board, and she suggested that we talk, and we had a brief conversation, and we found that we had not really much in common from the recovery background because that's not your story. Uh, we have some things in common musically. We're both, we love music, both playing musical instruments. But really where we really came together was on the discussion, as I shared with you my story, of having gone through in 2009 a very difficult period of my life and my recovery process where I 
found myself in the 6400 unit at Akron General, and that was the uh, the psych unit. And we're not going to get into that story because you can listen to other podcasts where you can hear the sorted details of the book of my regrets of that era of my life. But um, what was interesting about that part of the story and how we found our touchstones to talk is after that period, I was assigned a, a, um, a medical team and you know, I wasn't probably the best patient. And I didn't feel I was the best patient because I, I really didn't feel like I was understood. I remember uh, we talking about um, me going to this, um, this office and there would be a number of people there and often the appointments would be scheduled at a certain time and they would run maybe an hour late, maybe 45 minutes late. And no fault of this physician, but he would be dealing with crises and have to deal with. But I just kind of felt like I just wasn't connecting with that team of professionals. So guess what? I wasn't the most honest patient. And we wanted to talk a little bit about um, today about, you know, how do you, how do you find the right fit? with a, a medical team. And so I'm going to let you talk for a bit about, about that. But this is something I think a lot of people in my side of this screen over here really want to know when we go to look for a recovery team, when we go to look for the medical side of this component of substance abuse disorder, how do we know? How do we know we've got the right people that we're working with? Uh, thank you. And I really appreciate talking about this uh, for you and for the folks listening, because for, as, as you mentioned, for 20 some years, I've been involved in training psychiatry residents and training medical students. And the, the issue of that fit, the fit between the provider and the patient, between the person seeking help and the person getting help is just crucial to actually getting better. They've studied this quite a lot, actually looking at formal psychotherapy. And you can look at all sorts of different aspects of psychotherapy. So the training of the therapist and the approach of the therapist and the interventions and the techniques used by the therapist. But really when it comes down to it, the most significant thing is that alliance between the person seeking help and the person trying to give help. It's that connection that really determines if the person is getting better or not. You can have the brightest provider in the world. You can have the most motivated patient in the world. But if they're not connecting, the chances are they're not going to do so well. It's not going to be real helpful. I think part of the problem for me in, in my instance was that I just, I kind of felt like, you know, I was just another guy coming to see this guy. I sat in his office. It was full, right? Rightfully so. I, I really sensed that there were some people there that were really deeply in trouble deeply in trouble and i kind of felt like you know maybe maybe i shouldn't be here you know geez i'm just i'm just a drunk and i'm not going to tell the guy i'm still drinking <laughs> when he asked me about my meds i mean this was my perspective all honestly but i did see some people in that room that i observed being very very sick people and i, I kind of felt like you know let me get in and get out of here you know so that was part of the part of my dynamic one of the things and i think you've touched on actually a couple of things already is do you feel that that provider, and I'm going to use the word provider, and but that could be a counselor, it could be just a therapist, it could be just a psychiatrist, whatever it is. I'm going to use the word provider, I think, try to do that consistently. But do you feel that that provider respects you and values you as a person? Yes, you might have made mistakes. You might have done things that you're ashamed of and you're embarrassed of. But you know what? So have they. So have I. Right. We've all done right. things that we're not proud of and we don't want others to know. But do you have a sense that they're interested in you as a human being? 
that, you know, are they treating you just like you're a number or you're just their 1030 appointment? Or do they value who you are? Do they think that you're a valuable person? Now, that value can come from a humanistic view that everyone has value. It can come from a religious view that we're made in the image of God, wherever it comes from. Do they value who you are? Are you worth their time? And if you get the sense that you're not worth their time, that they're not respecting you, it's awfully hard for you to connect with them. And that that kind of relates to my, my second idea, which is, are they interested in you as a person? There are some things that they will always ask you about. How frequently have you been using? Uh, how much have you been using? What kinds of symptoms are you having? If you're on medications, are you taking your medications? Are you having side effects? Okay. They have to ask those kinds of standard questions. But are they interested in you for more than that? Are they interested in you for your history, for your goals, for your personal strengths, for your struggles, for your accomplishments? If they're not really interested in you as a whole person, again, it's really hard uh, to get better in that kind of environment. They need to value you as a person, be interested in you as a person. And probably my third idea is that they're committed to you, that they want to treat you. They want to help you. And you know what? You will make mistakes and you will have dark times and times when it might be difficult to be around and slips and relapses, but are they going to stick it out with you and be there with you during the difficult times and during the long run? If you have a sense that they're just waiting to kick me out, then you're not going to get better in that environment. Those would be the first three things I would think of kind of looking for that good match with a provider. You know, do they value you? Are they interested in you as a person? And are they committed to your treatment and to your recovery? And if they're not, they might be really good people, but maybe they're just not the best person for you. How do, how do physicians keep that mojo going. I mean, as musicians, we talk about the mojo. How do you walk on stage night after night playing the same songs over and over again? You know, and it's people say, Oh, I love that song, but you get you know, I played that song 6,325 times. It's just, it's kind of like going to grandma's for cooking. You know, I love her chicken, but I don't really want her chicken anymore. How do you guys keep that interest up? where, you know, day after day after day, you're seeing just sick patient after sick patient after sick patient. And the numbers with alcoholics and addicts and people who suffer from substance abuse disorders, they're not always that good. You just don't know. I mean, my personal physician will tell me that, you know, it's tough because he sees a lot of people and he knows that there's either direct or indirect reasons that they're ill because of substance abuse disorder. And he's even told me, he would need a whole wing of of his practice to be able to, to treat that. But how do you keep it? How do you keep the mojo working when you see sick people day after day after day? How do you do that? It's a great question, and and it's a it's a definitely a challenge. If you look at burnout, uh, every profession has folks who burn out in it, and physicians. It's the studies say forty percent, fifty percent of physicians out there have experienced some symptoms of burnout, and one of them is exactly this that you lose connection with the person in front of you. You start treating them like they're a case. You know, it's just another appendicitis or it's just another alcoholic or it's just another depressed person or whatever. And, and you lose that individual connection with them. So how do you maintain it? Well, one of the ways that you connect with folks is know that you have been there yourself. And so that's why peer counselors are so helpful in, in recovery because they have been there. 
That's why so many providers who focus on recovery have often had struggles either in themselves or in their family with addiction because they know what it's like and that gives them that internal motivation. For others, again, it's a faith-based issue that they come you know, with a faith that, again, people are made in the image of God and are therefore worth your time and worth your effort. And you just remind yourself of that. But I think for the other folks, one of the things you have to do is you look for that connection. You'll look for something that you can identify with, something that you can appreciate about them. Uh, and I think if you look for it, if you're consciously, deliberately looking for it uh, in all of the people you're working with, you can find something. And you use that connection. And maybe it's a, a mutual interest in music or a type of music or a type of food or cultural events or sporting events or whatever it is that you can find something that you can connect with on an individual level. And once you've made that connection with them as two people in a room, then you can work at becoming provider and patient. Then you can work at helping them. But you really have to consciously and deliberately look for that connection. What I'm hearing you say is empathic or or a, a compassion, right? How do you teach compassion? And, and some people would say you can't, that compassion has to come from within. But I think you can. And, and, and I think compassion and empathy are very, very related. I think slightly different, but empathy is easier to teach. Empathy is that ability to put yourself in the other person's situation uh, and understand what, they're, what they might be thinking, what they might be feeling. Now, you might get it wrong, but at least you've tried. And I think compassion flows from that, that once you, the better you get at putting yourself in someone other's situation, what would, what would it be like for me if I was that person? Then you can start to feel compassion. I don't really, I don't know Latin very much, but I'm pretty sure compassion comes from Latin. I think it does, but I think it means with the same yeah, intense yeah. feeling. And as you put yourself in that person's position, as you imagine what it would be like to be, you know, a single mother taking care of two kids struggling with an addiction, that's obviously an experience that's very different from mine, but I can try to imagine what that's like. And as I imagine what that's like, I can start to feel compassion for her situation, for what she is going through, for how hard she struggles just to make it through the day with all of the pressure that's on her. So even though it's a very different experience from that I've ever had, by deliberately thinking it through and placing myself and trying to imagine myself in that situation, you can start to feel that compassion. And through effort, you can get better at that. You can develop that as a skill. Some of it, there are some people who are just innately empathic. You know, they just walk into a room and they can tell you that person over there is feeling sad. That person over there is angry. Honestly, I'm not naturally empathic at all. For me, it's a deliberate act. I have to consciously put myself and say, what would it be like to be that person? And the only way I can do that is to know them as a person, to ask about their background and their struggles. What would you suggest for a patient to do? when he walks in and he catches a, his care provider team having a bad day. Okay, so I'm walking in. Number one, my experience is, I don't know if I want to be here. Okay, I maybe got some secrets in my front pocket. I'm not going to, will I tell? Do I tell him I use? Do I tell him I re-blast? Do I, do I tell him I'm having a bad day? Do I tell him I really want to go to use? And you walk in and maybe you're not getting the experience, the connection point. What do you do when you're a patient? and you're dealing with your team that way, what would you suggest? This would be the flip side of compassion, or maybe the fact that compassion has to go both ways. 
that uh, I, I would encourage everyone to give them the benefit of the doubt, to realize that that provider is not perfect either. Uh, that we have bad days or we have days when we're feeling overwhelmed or days when we're worried about our kids or our parents or our friends. And so any provider, anyone can have an off day or two. So I, I think I would encourage folks to, to give them that benefit of the doubt. But if it's in a recurring pattern, then you can always bring it up. Just say, you know, I've been coming to you for you know six months and it still feels like you don't understand me as a person. Uh, it still feels like you're not quite seeing my situation and see how they respond. There's this level, and I don't want to say um, the pious priest syndrome, okay, because I, I grew up in a very religious family, but there were places where, you you know, you don't challenge authority, you don't challenge authority. We're, we're taught that on a lot of levels. So, I mean, this is a really important point you're making here. How do you say, how would you suggest to say, hey, you know what? I can see you're feeling this. Hey, I, I, I can see, you know, I, I'm not sure you're really hearing me, doc. I'm not really sure you're hearing me. Also, do you suggest that you use first names when you talk with doctors? That's an important point. The first question, uh, Basically, no provider should be threatened by truthful dialogue or, or, you know, or friendly, respectful dialogue. Just as a strategic way, I would say, I appreciate how hard you're working. I appreciate how hard you're trying to help me. But I think there's something that's not quite working right. Uh, I, I would probably preface it with that, saying, I appreciate how hard you're working here, but I don't feel like you quite understand what my situation is, or I don't think you're quite hearing what I'm trying to tell you, and then explain it back to them. So that would be the, the first kind of technique I would use, is just that I appreciate this, but it could be better, or I am doing well. I think this is going okay, but I think we could do better. Something like that, I think, would be good. Going back to the first name, there's going to be some variation there based on what kind of provider you're, you're working with. Most social workers I know, licensed therapists I know, are, are very familiar, very comfortable uh, with using their first name. That's kind of how they are trained. That's, that's what they tend to do. Most physicians probably are not going to be comfortable uh, using first names. And what we have, what I have always, again, taught my residents is it's a sign of respect, but it should be mutual. If you're calling them doctor so-and-so, they should be calling you Mr. Shannon, unless you prefer something else. Uh, that they should be showing you the same respect that you're, you're showing them. But most physicians that I am aware of uh, are going to you know, expect you to call them doctor so-and-so. Uh, psychologists, it's really 50-50. Uh, I, I, most of them go by doctor as well. But again, if you are giving respect, you should be receiving respect. One of the things I've always taught my residents is, yeah, you can expect to be referred to as, as Dr. Welton in my case, but I'm not going to refer to my patient as Billy because that's demeaning them. That's showing that I don't respect them as an adult. So they're going to be, you know, Mr. Smith or Mr. Shannon in your case, uh, because we're, it's, it's emphasizing that professional relationship between the two of us. We might get very, very close. I might know a lot of the, the things you're going through and a lot of your secrets, but it's still a professional relationship. So we're, I, we emphasize that by using those titles. That's a super great comment. So also, what are the things that I could do as a patient 
to really, really be more respectful to you? What are the things that you guys want to see us? And because, you know, obviously we walk in, how can I be a better patient is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. I, some days you're just not feeling great. When you're in early recovery, your brain is not working. You understand post-acute withdrawal. My brain was just jumbled. I mean, it wasn't connecting. You know, I wasn't well when I was going in and stress was a big, big problem for me because then it just made that anxiety just come right to the surface. And I wanted to get in and out. I wanted to get in and out as quickly as possible. Okay, I could check off that I went to see my psychiatrist. I could check off that I got my meds. I could check off that... But I mean, I think I, in a lot of ways, I wasn't a very good patient and I wasn't honest. I wasn't able to say to him, you know what, doc, I'm still drinking and you're giving me these meds and I'm not sure they're working. If I would have said that, I would have saved myself so much misery. So from your perspective, how could, how could people with the issue of substance abuse disorder be better patients? How could I have been more honest you know, what, what are the things that, that, that I could have taken into that in my front pocket into those meetings where I could have said, you know what, I got, I got to be more honest. How can I be a better patient here? How can I do it? And the first thing is, although it's a step of faith, uh, because you are going to have to trust them and, and realizing that patients have been let down and have been disappointed. And it's extremely common uh, for folks in recovery to have had adverse interactions, I can say it that way, with medical providers in the past, uh, interactions that didn't turn out well, uh, where they weren't very kind uh, to you, uh, but still to, to give that person the benefit of the doubt and trust that they are really interested in helping you. And they really can't help you unless you're being honest with them. Now, I realize that honesty is something that has to be earned. Uh, and they have to warrant your honesty. So maybe it's something that you build up over time and you maybe not tell them that you're drinking heavily. Tell them you've been thinking about drinking and see how they respond to that. And if they respond positively, then you can let them know that, you know, well, maybe I did have a few drinks, but to, you know, gradually let them earn your trust. And the only way you, they can earn your trust is by you opening up and being honest. Some other fairly simple things. It's about showing up for appointments. And you're absolutely right. This is often very one-sided. You know, we ask you to show up on time for your appointments and then we're running an hour late. And how unfair, that's very unfair. And I, I realize that. Show up for appointments. There's nothing that will turn a treatment team against someone quicker than having patients who just, just simply don't show up. Now, there will be times when you can't make it. That's okay. We understand. We we know life is is complicated, but call, let folks know you're not coming. Let folks know that you can't make it. Uh, if you can make it late, call and see if they can shift your appointment. And often they can't. Sometimes they can't, but let them know that. As I said, be honest. Uh, even if it doesn't show you in the best of light, give them the chance to show that they're a, you know, a good girl, a good guy, that they're really working for you. Ask questions if they don't, if you don't understand what they said. That's one of the things that is going to really sink treatment. The, the doctor might be talking a mile a minute, or maybe they're not even explaining themselves very well. And the natural tendency is just to sit there and nod your head and say, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And even if you have no idea what they were just talking about and to walk out, and that's not going to do you any good. And that's not going to be helpful for you. And that's not helpful for the, the treatment and for the therapy. So if you don't understand what they said, ask them to repeat themselves or to explain it another way. I didn't quite follow that doc. Could you tell me that again? Could you explain that? I didn't quite follow what you were saying. Could you explain that in a different way? Let them make sure that you understand what they're asking you to do. and also 
to let them know if you don't think you're going to be able to do it. Right, right. Very, very often we're going to ask for a commitment. Mm. Uh, you know, mm. don't drink at all in the next week or, you know, have no drinks in the next two weeks. And we want you to commit to that. And if you can commit to that, please do. If we're asking you to do something you know you can't do, we're asking you to, instead of drinking, go exercise five days a week. And you know that's not going to happen. Let us know that, you know, I would love to be able to commit to that, but I'm not sure that I can. Can we change the expectation to get at something that I can commit to? So let's take exercise because that's fairly neutral. Uh, you know, so yes, everyone should be exercising four or five days a week for 45 minutes to get, you know, elevate your heart rate and that kind of stuff. If I can't get you to commit to four to five days a week, can you commit to two or three? I would rather have you honestly commit to two or three days a week than have you tell me you're going to do four or five days a week when you know you're not. And so the same thing about medications and the same thing about substance use. Let me know if you really can't commit to what I'm asking you to commit to. I think that we're talking about an environment where we can communicate honestly between both parties. I can honestly say to you that, that my experience was immediately satisfied when I asked the question I said to the doctor. I said, why does it always take us so long to get to our appointment? And he said to me, I'm never sure when a crisis is going to show up. And then immediately I had empathy and understanding for what he went through which is, you know, he's got a stack up of an appointments. I was a big time fancy executive at the time, Mr. Fancy Pants in Great Suits. And I knew what it felt like to have my day hijacked, you know, and I immediately understood because he told me and he used two concepts, which I think are super important, which is the why. He told me why. And then he said, because using the word because really just set me to the place where I was totally comfortable. So the magic question for you is we're heading towards the end of this. We want to see that it works. And I can tell you that my relationship with my physician works fabulously because we've been through a lot of this and we've talked to each other. We've got a great fit, great relationship now. What do you do when you know it's time for a divorce with your provider and you need to move on to something else? How do you, what's the best way from your side of the street that you would like to see from a patient to say, look, it just doesn't work for me. And because I would imagine you just don't hear from people again. It's just over. They don't, they just don't show up, Right. So how do we do that? That is the most common. The most common solution is they simply, you know, cancel their next appointment or just don't show for it and you never hear from them again. And that's how most people right. do it. And, and I can understand that. That's certainly the easiest way to do it. Mm. The problem with doing it that way is you do lose that history together. If this is someone you've worked with for two or three years and you just simply don't come back, then essentially, you know, that two or three years is lost. Right. They have notes and they can pass the notes on to the next provider and all of that. But that's not the same as working with someone for, you know, over a course of time. So I would, again, another step of faith, but give them the benefit of the doubt and bring up if you don't think it's working well. Right. I, I can think of, of patients who had that conversation with me. This is what I'm looking for from you. This is what I want you to do. And you're not doing it. Can you do that? And I, then I, as the provider, have the decision of, is that something I can do? Right. Um, so, for example, uh, a patient who said, I need you to be available to me whenever I want to reach out to you. Right. And, and that's simply not a condition I could live by. 
can't have that kind of 24-7 access. It, it wouldn't be fair to have it for one patient and not for all patients. And I couldn't even do it for one patient. Very true. So that's what they were looking for. So we had to find them a, a group. And, and basically what it was with this particular patient is rather than a single provider, they needed a round-the-clock team you know, a, a crisis team that would always have someone available. It might not be their provider, it'd be, but it would be someone on the team who was available. So we had to find that for them. So let them know if it's not working. If you don't think it's working, if your expectations aren't being met, let them know what your expectations are, what your desires are. Maybe they can meet them. Maybe it's a completely reasonable shift. And, you know, it's, uh, I would rather not meet it two. Could we meet it four? That's fine. We can work that. But if they just can't, meet that expectation or you're asking for something that they just can't provide or despite your best efforts, the relationship just isn't working, then sometimes you have to say, you know, I really appreciate it. I just don't think this is the, the best match. I just want to let you know I'm going to be looking for, you know, another provider. I've had folks tell me that. I don't get offended. I don't get upset. I just realize that sometimes relationships don't work out. And that's true interpersonally, it's true with friendships, it's true with people you work with, and uh, it's true with uh, patients you're trying to treat. I would imagine it's the same from your side of the street also, where you feel like, I just don't think I can help this guy. I don't think they're being honest with me. They keep showing up. The same things keep happening. What's the best phrase? Say, Nothing keeps happening, meaning they don't, they don't take their meds, they don't do what they're supposed to do. And do you ever get to the point where you feel the sense of frustration, like this guy keeps coming into my office but I just know I just can't help them unless they really want to help themselves. And I mean, what, what does it feel like as a physician when you have to face that? Yeah, that, that does happen. Uh, and it happens, unfortunately, uh, I wouldn't say frequently, but it's not infrequent. Right. And the easiest thing as a provider is just to blame the patient. Oh, bad patient, right? That's your, your, your first response. Right. Oh, if I only had yeah, but a big X... And, you know, it's a bad patient and, you know, they don't want to get better and it's their own fault. X on them, right? X on their chart, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Take the next step and say, what have I done wrong? You know, how is this my fault? Am I treating them poorly? Am I treating them differently than I treat other people? Uh, but often the truth is kind of in the middle, that it's just not a good match. And I've, again, had that conversation and it's not an easy one. It's not easy for the patient. It's not easy for me. Uh, but to say, you know what? I just don't think this is working. And the evidence is, you know, whatever I'm treating is not getting better. So, you know, your addiction is not getting better. Your depression is not getting better. Whatever it is that we're trying to work with isn't getting better. Despite all of our efforts, I think we might need a new approach. I just really want to thank you for, for sharing your time and your expertise with us. And I I think the thought that I'm leaving with is that, you know, I once was told as, you know, in, in a 12-step in a program, that the 12th step itself is, is you know, having that spiritual awakening, having that place where you've come to a place where you, you have a certain degree of expertise and skill. The intention is to share it with others. And I, I once had someone tell me as I was talking about um, someone in, in a program of recovery tell me that I was really expressing frustration of not being able to help this person who had asked me for help. And the way it came across to me in this, and I can't exactly say what, what he said to me, but he basically left me with the thought that, you know, if someone wasn't, doesn't want to be helped, you have to focus on moving forward to getting to the people that really want to be helped. Because for every moment you're wasting on the people that you cannot help, who will not or aren't ready yet to be helped, there's someone out there that is ready to be helped, that you could be helping them. 
And so I've held on to that thought. And I can imagine that from your position also, that that's got to be the, you know, you wake up every day and go, you know, there's going to be somebody today I can help, somebody I can teach that is receptive, that's willing to be open to my thinking and discussion. So I, I just think that, you know, we, we even though we come from worlds apart, Randy, we, we are definitely in, in the same intention, which is at the end of the day, we want to help people. So I want to thank you for being a part of this podcast. Wow. Really great. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for, for having me on. I'm delighted to do it. Anytime in the future, just give, give me, you have my email, get a hold of me. Be, be careful because I may be waiting outside <laughs> your house in the bushes. <laughs> it's that guy, that podcast guy again, you know? So, okay, today we want to say thank you for hanging with us for this edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. Stay tuned to Rock and Recovery for more episodes and more guests as they share their journey from the darkness to the light. And until then, everybody stay standing and steady on. Rock and Recovery Minute. Recovery rocks. This is not the kind of support they are normally going to get. Dr. Frank Campbell developed local outreach to suicide survivors for family and loved ones to help them understand and accept their loss. Most people are going to run from them, be scared of them, treat them as though they have some kind of contagious disorder. And in reality, it's a cause of death not unlike any other cause of death. People die by heart attack, they die by cancer, they don't commit cancer. So we need to lose the word commit and just recognize that when people die by suicide, that's what it is, a death of suicide. And their cause of death should never describe their life. Hear the full interview and learn more at rockandrecovery.com. This has been a Rock and Recovery Minute. Recovery rocks. Raising awareness, removing stigma, and offering hope. Hi, I'm Garrett Hart for Rock and Recovery. It's the nightly radio show that offers upbeat rock songs and inspirational messages for people in recovery from addiction, trauma, and mental health disruptions. It's for families and friends as well. Rock and Recovery is broadcast every night, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern at 91.3 FM in Akron, Ohio and at 90.7 FM in Youngstown, Ohio. The show can be heard at thesummit.fm. You can also listen to Rock and Recovery on our 24-7 radio channel streaming at rockandrecovery.com. We've got a free app for your phone so you can listen anytime, anywhere. Everyone needs a little R&R. Rock and Recovery. Recovery rocks.